Welcome to the HVACR Radio Podcast. We've got the whole crew back tonight. We've got Chad, Ulysses, Ruben, and we're coming at you with an episode from Cool Air Inc. about ammonia leak detectors. But first, let's find out what the guys did this week. Chad, what'd you do this week? Uh, today, I was at uh, our one of my ammonia accounts. I'm just doing the PM. Worked on uh, part two of that oil pump that where the coupling had failed. Um, installed a new spider gear, and the motor was pretty far out of alignment. So threw some shims in it, aligned it up, ran it. It was a lot better. Uh, slide ammonia leak on a liquid valve. Uh, pump the coil down, replace the gasket. It's pretty uneventful. Yeah, but you don't want to talk about the Monday Monday episode. <laughs> Monday fun stuff. I don't remember what I did on Monday. It's Wednesday. I've already forgotten <laughs> changing out a Cornell pump seal because it was leaking. Oh, that was Monday. I tried to forget that day. Monday, we our Chad had me go to that account and I found one of the Cornell pumps leaking. So I pumped some oil into it. It started leaking oil, but it stopped leaking ammonia. So that was good. Until the oil and ran out. And then I went to go work on the banana uh, ripening system. Came back to check on the pump and it started leaking oil. I mean, ammonia again. So that's when me and Chad um, pulled the pump out and replaced the seal, shaft seal, and put it back together. And hopefully it lasts for another month. That was a long day. <clears throat> yeah, which is actually kind of awkward because the Cornell pumps are supposed to have a double bellows seal so that that doesn't ever even... Like, if you have any kind of oil leak or anything like that, it's supposed to leak back into the system, not leak out of the pump. So it's kind of weird that that would even happen. But that, yeah, that seal is way far gone. Maybe you can post some pictures. and Yeah, I'll, I'll pretty, pretty yeah maybe not, maybe. but maybe. What else? Um, <clears throat> Tuesday, we replaced a condenser coil for a fun. chiller at a bottling company. That was a pretty straightforward job. Then, Ruben, what did you do today? I'm with Chad on this one. I really don't remember what I did on Monday. <laughs> well, you wanted to forget. I actually did forget. Um, do you even know what day it is today? Yeah, it's Wednesday. I'm pretty sure you just changed filters. Mm, it, I seen you post some about the RF. Yeah, you pulled it back. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm 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 trying to start from Monday, but oh, I don't just remember. So yesterday, I was sent on my first uh, VRF call, but I was assisting because I'm still on the job training. So uh, it was just a brand new system. Was installed by a subcontracted contractor, I guess. So. <laughs> <laughs> It, just a subcontractor. Subcontractor? Yeah. Because it's like well, it was subbed to a sub. Oh, there is. Like you're a sub and then you subbed it up to another sub? No. Like, <laughs> it's a sub of the sub? Yeah. There was like two subs in there. I know that much. Because <laughs> there was there was a lot of miscommunication as far as... Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of miscommunication as far as what steps everybody had to do. So, for example, um, from what I'm being told is that we go verify that the system is in a vacuum and it's holding proper microns and all that, but nobody put it in a vacuum. So we ended up having to start a vacuum. Uh, we got it down to 188 microns. That was pretty cool. And uh, Be careful. Yeah. No. Damage that oil. No. It's been debunked. You should listen actually, to those guys no. at HVCR actually, Radio. No. <laughs> we still don't know. Yeah, no, it's a lot more than yes or no. That no, should be good. Yeah, but now we started it up, man. It was pretty fun just working on uh, something different, uh, LG uh, VRF system with, you know, hooking up a laptop to it, and you could see what the system's doing and all the readings and all that. So I just, it's a pretty cool experience. Never done that before. That was it. Well, I got another funky service call that I went oh, to yeah, that's right. on today. So this place makes uh, beans. Um, to one cooler, he said they they have two systems. One is typically a <laughs> backup system. So sorry, bro. Sorry. I mean, do they make the beans? No, like they, they grow them. them, or no, they cook them actually. Oh, okay. Can them cook, cook them and cool. Can them, can them cook them. So it smells pretty good in there. 
So anyways, they have a big cooler, two systems. One is supposedly a backup system. I'm not sure that's 100% true, but that's what the guy was telling me. So I he told me he had to reset the oil Centronic pretty regularly since they've lowered the temperature. So <clears throat> I'm going to ask y'all, what do you think would cause a system to go off on low oil pressure? If And I checked the oil uh, pump and it had like 40 PSI D differential. What would you think could cause it to trip? Well, what, what was the temperature ranges? <clears throat> 45 and then 35, but they had the thermostat set to 33. All right. What, how many defrosts? It had six. This is where it gets tricky, but for how long? Uh, 40 minutes. Electric defrost or air defrost? It, it had electric defrost. Had electric defrost or has it? Has, it has electric defrost now. Is it working? Now it is. Okay, I'm going to say that there was an issue with the defrost and the coil was frozen up, flooding back, washing out the oil, causing it to go off on oil. Boom. Bingo. So this is... <sighs> you were there all day trying to figure this out? No. I, was looking at <laughs> I just figured it out in like... <laughs> Well, he well, gave you all the info in like 10 seconds, so calm down. <laughs> I, I calm down. I, it was in defrost. Yeah. The fans were off. But when I got up on the scissor lift to look at the electrical, the heaters were never hooked up. What? So when it was going into defrost, the fans would shut off, and that was it. <laughs> I don't know how so, it worked for medium, maybe for medium temp, 45. Yeah, probably. Oh, so once they lowered the temperature, so was it frozen up? I asked them if anyone's not when I was there because it was off on oil for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. They only use that cooler like every so often. It's not all the time they use it, but the heaters were never hooked up since day one. This system's 2008. So that's what was throwing me off. I was like, what's going on here? <clears throat> There's two transformers in the unit. One transformer is for 120 for the controls inside. The other transformer is for the controls upstairs on the condenser. And I was trying to see what was going on. So I was trying to check my heater amps and it wasn't <clears throat> the contactor. I was checking amperage on the contactors downstairs, upstairs, and it wasn't pulling any amperage. So when I went downstairs, I was like, no way, this has never been hooked up before. So I hooked it up, started to smoke a little bit, which I was pretty, <clears throat> I thought it was going to smoke out the whole box because it's never been hooked up. I smoked out a house once. <laughs> when, I, <laughs> when I hooked up some heaters that were never hooked up, um, that's another story, but yeah. I thought that I had nightmares about that, so... You can do the same yeah, thing if never. you can do the same thing if you're looking for a leak on a evaporator coil and you spray the whole coil down with uh, bubbles and then, and then turn the <laughs> turn the heat on. Yeah, it gets kind of cloudy too. So that was my little service call. It was kind of just throwing me for a loop. So I hooked up the heaters and I guess hopefully that fixes that issue. So so weird. I know it's in Tronics. They there's only a few things that make them trip. So. I kind of started looking for something other than the oil pressure. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty rare. If I don't think I've ever even seen an oil pump fail. Well, I've seen an oil pump failure, yeah. but I don't think that that's what caused the compressor failure. I think the compressor failed and then sheared off the key. Usually the only time I've seen oil pressure issues is when a gasket... Like me and Chad found a gasket that was bad, or the crank is broken. Yeah, broken, Anyone? broken components in the yeah. in the compressor. Yeah, that or if you have a Centronic and you have like a blocked up screen on the sensor, or a sensor goes bad, or yeah, just the Centronic module itself goes out. Yeah, but it's really pretty uncommon. I would say that if an actual oil pump, I've done it before, where I thought, oh, I don't have don't have good oil pressure and change the oil pump when I was you know newer thinking oil pressure equals oil pump and then I got the oil pump off and I'm like oh, things just a it's near. just a metal rotary gear like there's not a whole lot to go wrong here and I still changed it out and obviously my problem didn't go away 
think same you, here. I think you changed one, and it was yeah. Actually. That's it was the exact same thing. Like you said, I had no oil pressure, and uh, I thought it was a pump, and I changed the um, and the reason I thought it was a pump because for some reason this compressor had been changed out like six months before I I went there, um, and I changed the pump out, and I had the exact same issue and i actually contacted copeland and they said um okay i'm lying it wasn't copeland it was a copeland rep which was at a local united refrigeration yeah they're like the copeland okay. experts or All whatever right. so but yeah so i contacted him and i said look man this is these are my numbers this is my oil pressure this is what i've changed out i said and they're like nope you probably have a broken um some sort of dip tube or or pick up something from i forgot what he named it but anyways we pretty much condemned a compressor for that. Yeah, that's so. exactly what happened to me, too. Just ended up replacing the compressor. Yeah. And well, now I don't feel road. so bad. Because at first I was like, God, I always try to find the real cause of it. But they told me it was internal, so there's nothing I can really do. And, we're not, and we weren't allowed to open up any compressors, so mm. kind of sucks. Sweet. So you got back up and running and just waiting for the place to burn down now? Yeah, <laughs> I installed the heater safety, so. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. You got a tool this week or no? <clears throat> well, it was um, a tool I was going to do last week or a couple of weeks ago. It was a 007. Do it. What is it? It's James uh, Bond. It's James Bond Jr. <clears throat> Basically, <laughs> we had a so issue. Did we already, did I already talk about this? No. <laughs> no, go ahead. No? Okay. No. We had a issue at a an ammonia account with the vessel was high leveling. We weren't a hundred percent sure if we were losing power or if the vessel was really high leveling. So this is, I think it's made by Diversitech, but basically you put it, uh, it has a light on it with a nine volt battery. You put it across a, like a safety switch. And if that safety switch opens, the light will stay on to let you know that it has tripped or that switch has opened. So I think Cameron, you found out that I think we did have two issues. I think they kept losing power and that would shut the system down and you had to reset the, um, the controller for that, uh, recirculator for the pump. But I think you also found that the hand expansion valve was worn out and you had to close it down a little bit, but I'm not really sure if it was, it could have been high leveling. Yeah, it was never high leveling. When we got there, it would always be normal or low level. And then, you know, we, we'd reset it. It would turn on. Everything would be fine. And then we'd have to go back and they'd call us and tell us that it had failed again. And then the only thing I think we changed out, uh, the float was kind of funky. So I think we changed out the float because yeah, sure. the float arm was like not exactly failed, but it was really loose. Like you could just. So what was happening was I would tap the float and it would high level, like just barely tapping it. And I was like, okay, well, I, you know, it's kind of weird. So like normally if you tap a float, it won't just fail. Like it won't, the float arm won't go against the, the spindle or the magnet. So I changed that out and then it kind of calmed it down a little bit. But then later on it happened again and I went to look at the, look at it again. The weird thing about that plan is that they feed high pressure liquid right into a low temp circulator because there's only one vessel. It's only a low, low temp they suction used to go through the economizer or the subcooler, but they, yeah, they eliminated that. So it used to go through the economizer, but then, or the subcooler, but then they eliminated that. So it just goes straight off the receiver and dumps right into the, um, re- the low temp recirculator. And the crazy thing was, is that this pipe is like a one inch pipe that goes, you know, horizontal, vertical, horizontal again. And it has very, I'd say minimal bracing or anything to really hold it. And as soon as the solenoid would kick on to feed liquid to the recirculator, the freaking, the pipe would just like vibrate like crazy and shake the piping, the liquid piping. And also the float was kind of shaking. So I pinched down that valve to calm it down a little bit. And then it seemed like it kind of went away after that. We didn't have too many more problems, but we were thinking it was just like a relay was, failing or doing something weird intermittently so you'd put that title tail on there to try to see if it was tripping intermittently on its own yeah i guess it's a 
I don't use that tool very often, but I guess in cases where you have certain issues and you're not 100% sure if it's the switch that's opening, it could come in handy. Yeah, for sure. All right, tonight we've got Kevin Turnquist and Mark Worms from Cool Air Inc. to talk about ammonia leak detection. How are you guys doing? Awesome, guys. Oh, we're doing great. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Cool. Uh, can yeah, you guys excited. can you guys give us a little history of Cool Air Inc. and then also a little rundown of your uh, personal careers? Sure, I can do that. Um, so my name is Kevin Turnquist. Uh, this is actually my first podcast, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, and I really appreciate the invite. Um, and uh, uh, this this is uh, really great stuff. So. I'm a sales engineer for Cool Air Inc. Uh, I just started with the company in uh, 2020, February of 2020, so I'm pretty new. I'm also new uh, to the uh, to the industry, to the refrigeration industry. Uh, my background: I went to the University of Minnesota and got a mechanical engineering degree. Uh, but I spent most of my career in like heavy equipment. So we have uh, like caterpillars here in Minneapolis. Uh, so the company's based in Minneapolis. Um, so I spent some time with Caterpillar. But then I kind of transitioned into application engineering and got to work more with the customer and kind of uh, got exposed to technical sales and was attracted to that role. And so I saw an opportunity at Cooler Inc. and, and started here in February of 2020. So I'm responsible for the sale and marketing of Cooler Inc. ammonia gas detection equipment. Very cool. How about yourself, Mark? Uh, well, um, a little, yeah, background. Uh... I don't know. It's kind of crazy to say, but uh, uh, you're not going to believe this. But I also went to Mount Sac. No, you're kidding me. Oh, no, I, I am kidding you. That's horrible. Touche. Already, uh, man. Would, would you go to that? I don't know. Uh, no, I, I also went to the University of Minnesota. I, uh, but I've been prepping that uh, one line. I can't tell you guys how enjoyable it's uh, to listen to your podcast. I, I love in my travels to different end users, different ammonia plants. I can't tell you in general listening to podcasts and finally having one out there that is uh, related to our industry. I mean, totally uh, engaged myself. Like just listen to all that your podcast thus far. I you guys are exceptional. It's it's just great uh, to hear your stories and uh, you know your your close calls, near misses. Um, uh, it's just been refreshing, really. So um, uh, thanks for that. So just glad to be here. Like Kevin says, uh, I did go to the U of M, so um, University of Minnesota. Um, I actually work for Cool Air Mechanical. Cool Air Inc. is our sister company. but So I, I work in our uh, ammonia contracting uh, division. Um, you know, I'm a design engineer, but we do um, design and, you know, build installs. I do represent Cool Air Inc., uh, a lot at the national conventions such as the IAR and, and RITA conventions. So, um, you know, I can change codes uh, or, you know, and, and represent both companies being that, um, you know, we're all under the same roof. So, um, you know, years ago I, I started out in our HVAC and boiler system. Cool Air Mechanical also does that, and I can re relate that to TDI. You guys seem like you guys are in a lot of the same stuff that we are, uh, different mechanical aspects of construction and that was really cool because i could relate to that and uh you know when i started my cousin actually left we were a small we still are a small contractor um it was, it was just me and another service tech that was our ammonia division and in the last 10 years we've grown to over 20 construction fitters uh you know uh nine nine service techs and 10 office staff so it's just it's it's just like we're a totally different company and um uh, you know, I'm the industrial lead in that department and, um, you know, also support Cool Air Inc. And, and, and that's where we're at, you know, uh, with that. So, Awesome. How, yeah. how did Cool Air Inc. Uh, come into existence from Cool Air Mechanical? Were you guys just looking for a, a product that you could have for your own and would meet your needs or how did that happen? Yeah, I think, you know, the owner of Cool Air Mechanical, uh, Mark's grandfather, who started that company, at that time saw the need to also offer an ammonia gas detector with their refrigeration system. So he, he actually started the company 35 years ago, over 35 years ago in 1982 and designed the first ammonia leak detector to start offering those with their refrigeration system. So 
you can provide the customer with uh, you know uh, multiple products when you're delivering a refrigeration system. Absolutely. What what are the different types of sensors that you guys are offering right now? Sure. Uh, so we we offer um, two main sensors uh, that go into our products. Uh, one is uh, considered a solid state solid state sensor, and the other is electrochemical. And you probably, uh, if you're familiar with ammonia leak detectors in the industry or anybody that's listening, uh, typically, a ammonia leak detector is paired with an electrochemical sensor. Uh, but we also offer solid state, and that's really what we started with. So back in 1982, uh, when the company started, we had been solid state guys for a very long time. Um, so the sensor is lasts very long. Uh, they can last even up to 10 years in some applications. You know, if they're kind of in the right environment, it's not real dusty or dirty, uh, they can last a long time, and they have very low uh, replacement costs. So when it comes time to uh, replace the sensor, you can each and they're much less than EC sensors typically go for. Uh, but, you know, sometimes when we hear solid state sensor, we run for the hills a little bit because they are sensitive to and so if or you're getting um, uh, ethylene from ripening bananas or you're on the roof, uh, the detectors on the roof and they're off gassing with other gases in the facility, these sensors can pick that it's uh, it's common it happens and so uh we saw the need to also release an ec sensor which we did uh a couple of years ago and provide that option to our customers as, as well so those sensors they're highly selective to ammonia uh, cross sensitivity is very rare and in applications where there's not ammonia present we we uh, generally uh, point our customers toward that that sensor type Cool. What? So, where would you typically find these sensors out uh, throughout a facility? Would I? I mean, I know we have them in the engine room, but are they in each individual room or just strategic placement, or where would we normally find them? Sure, uh, Mark, you want to answer? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, so guys, we basically, you know, you got like you said, uh, the machinery room, and then every other place in the, you know, an ammonia facility, right? That's a, and that's a, that's a very uh, vast area, right? So, um. But, you know, and by a code, you're only really required to have a leak detection system in any, you know, machinery room or any other enclosed room that, you know, contains an ASME-rated uh, vessel uh, that contains ammonia. So that is by code the minimum. Uh, but, I mean, um, most end users, most people in the industry, it's very common to uh, place these, um, you know, on the return side of an evaporator, evaporator is a very common place uh, in a storage freezer coolers. You're going to find the best, you know, place for that is right in the return airstream mounted high right next to the evaporator for um, uh, good detection. Um, you know, whether, you know, that's an internal debate or a, a discussion between your customer uh, or end user, whether you want to mount uh, the leak detection high or low um there's advantages of, of both you know we know that ammonia is lighter uh than air and will rise um in a machinery room for example there is um you know typically an exhaust by code uh that will alleviate any ammonia releases uh typically through a roof and so um you know one of the nice features of our detector is we can have remote sensors actually we can actually have our display at eye level or outside the engine room, outside of a roof penthouse, like for a storage freezer, and actually have the sensor uh, near the evaporator or up high in an engine room. Um, you know, the only thing we say to, to, to that we really recommend is you, you mount these places where a service tech can maintain them. You know, you don't want to mount them behind uh, an exhaust duct behind, you know, inside a conduit where a guy can't work off a lift and, and access these things. You know, we, we typically remain, you know, in a machinery room, we recommend at eye level um, in a bank of compressors near vessels where you're going to have a high uh, probability of a, of ammonia release, uh, you know, um, and, and the square footage of a machinery room might dictate the amount, but, code says once again by minimum you really only have to have uh the one um low and high level p 
ppm alarm and then the the one shunt trip uh, leak detector that will actually uh, shut down any ammonia related equipment such as you know liquid pumps compressors and your ammonia king valve solenoids so um you know, there's, there's a lot of applications. If you got any specific questions outside of, you know, the uh, standard evaporator, uh, a penthouse, uh, you know, uh, loading dock areas, but we, we typically recommend that they're, they're mounted near the, the, the return airstream because that's where good airflow and, and you're going to, you know, get a good sense of the ammonia in the, in the air, in the room. So in a, mach- in a machinery room, what kind of PPM levels are we talking about for detection? Uh, you have low level, high level, and then... Uh, you have your shunt trip. What different PPM levels are those at typically? Right. So like anything below 25 PPM, you really don't have to have any alarms or notifications. Uh, it's usually, and if you, if you want to, that's end user uh, specific. They would request that um, anything at um, 150 uh, that exceeds 150, there should be visual indicators and a visual audible alarm uh, along with notification of that with leak detection. And then, if it jumps up to um, uh, 250 or 150 as well, I'm sorry, uh, it also initiates the emergency ventilation. So at those different concentrations, there's different actions that are required uh, by code. Um, if it gets to the upper detection limit of our detector, you can choose to do it at the upper uh, detection limit, which is for our detector is 1,000 ppm uh, for our electrochemical and solid state sensors that we offer. But um, we do have a catalytic bead, uh, LEL, um, that can uh, sense higher concentrations. And by code, like IAR says 40,000 ppm. That's the LEL uh, detector that will actually shunt trip equipment that should be interlocked into your um, you know, machinery room equipment. And when you say LEL, just so uh, people may not understand what you're talking about, you're talking about the lower explosive limit of ammonia. So what we're trying to do there is to prevent an additional catastrophic event, so to speak. So uh, we're trying to turn off the equipment so that we don't get any kind of explosions, fires, things like that happening, right? That's correct. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then if you have a relief line vent in the in the machine room, which is very common, usually we see detectors placed on those as well. And I think those are typically like 10,000 ppm. I believe. Yeah, right? ours, uh, we stick our solid-state sensor, uh, which goes from 0 to 1,000 uh, ppm. Uh, in some cases, customers require up to 1%. But we we see that maybe at lower concentrations, like let's say you have a weeping valve or something, we want to make sure we catch those too. So we, we offer our lower concentration uh, sensor in those applications. So our really, really fine vent detectors will come with our solid-state sensor. That makes sense to me. Why not catch it while it's low? What do you guys see? What do you guys see kind of replacement for ammonia detectors in the industry? I mean, the stuff that we've done, well, I mean, honestly, it runs the gamut. So we've built a facility and we put in low level, high level and relief line vent uh, sensor in the machinery room. And then it was a production facility and they wanted to have it. So you have a large amount of personnel, which would be a little bit different than just like a cold storage facility. Uh, that may have a little bit less staff on hand, but so they had each individual room with its own sensor in it. And then that sensor, uh, essentially what they wanted it to do was to shut down the valve station for that room. If a leak was detected uh, in, in that area to try to contain the leak to just that area. Um, But, but then it go, that's from like a newer installation. Then we've, we have accounts that have like one, analog sensor in the machine room i mean you know just like very old systems they just didn't have that kind of uh technology or they just didn't put it in for one reason or another they're grandfathered into these uh older regulations so to speak so it kind of sure. runs the gamut from yeah. what about height uh, Is all it usually that kind of in the breathing zone or um, uh, up high or no, the ones in in like production areas or cold storage in the actual in the facility, they typically are up high, kind of what you guys are talking mm-hmm. about in a return airstream, or mounted on the wall, uh, you know, behind the evaporator or something like that. Um, in the machine rooms, they're typically, I'd say for the most part, they're pretty eye level. I have run into a few that were kind of what Mark was talking about, mounted in some swaths that were 
behind pipes, behind conduit. You had to, you know, crawl over stuff to get to them. And obviously those are less than ideal circumstances, but for the most part in the newer installations now, I think we see them on a, on a column or something like that centrally located in the room and pretty much eye level. Sure. How often are you in an application where you are providing the direction versus the end user already knows or, or believes they, they, they know where they'd like to place them? I mean, it's a, it's a, when we're engineering, yeah, it's a little bit of a mix. When we're, when we're engineering it, we tell them what we, we give them direction on how it should be um, based on our, you know, uh, experience, so to speak. Um, sure. But in a lot of these applications, we're large, largely service oriented as well. So a lot of the buildings that we go into have already had these um, leak detection systems installed. So we're just working with whatever was already there. Mm-hmm. You, you guys ever run into the customer that he says, well, I got, I got a thousand leak detectors and he's referring to all his staff and process areas, you know? <laughs> yeah. The and best, like, the best leak detectors known. Yeah. Yeah. The human sniffer. Right. And, uh, yep. and, and so you, you do get that mindset still in, in this day and age, but um, you know, if we could sell, you know, a leak detector for every evaporator, uh, you know, and cover every, you know, uh, such and such square foot of a compressor room, we would, but, you know, we know that costs and economics, you know, are, you know, a factor in decision-making. So, I mean, you get a, you get a um, wide range of, you know, different customers and and what, you know, they want to do with, with their leak detection. Hey guys, this is Ulysses. I was looking through y'all's uh, website and I saw this handheld ammonia leak detector. I thought it was pretty neat because I've never seen that and I'm kind of tired of choking on sulfur sticks. Can y'all talk sure. about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, we, uh, we, so we, including our fixed ammonia leak detectors, uh, we also have the handheld detector as well. So the, uh, that, that sensor, uh, you can put two sensor types in it, uh, both ammonia. Um, sorry, with two different sensor ranges. Uh, the first range is zero to 500 ppm. Uh, the second range is zero to 2,000 ppm. So you can use that uh, handheld device to basically spot check. So you're looking for uh, potential leak sources. Uh, it does come with like uh, a wand that you can, a flexible wand, so you can pinpoint pinpoint the source of the leak. Um, it has a display on it, so you can see uh, uh, what what the concentration is. Uh, for ammonia, and if you're uh, if if you're in areas that have other gases present, we can get other gases uh, gas sensors for it too. They're kind of smart sensors, so you take the bottom off and plug in the other sensor type, and uh, we have a whole range or, or a whole variety of sensors that you can put in that device. So if you're in process areas or coolers or freezers or anything like that, confined spaces, uh, prior to entry, you can use that wand to figure out uh, where the leak is coming from. So you have, you, sorry, go ahead, Mark. Oh, you know, what I seen was cool one time, guys, is a maintenance guy. Um, he actually drilled a hole through his uh, metal door, and then he had a, like a sliding cover plate that would go over that hole, and he had one of our handheld detectors, and he would open it and stick that flexible wand through the hole, and that was his way of, like, knowing that it was safe to go into the engine room. And uh, I always thought that was kind of a neat concept. And even speaking for our service techs, we suit these guys up with our handhelds and they love it 10 times better than carrying those sulfur sticks around and lighting that match and their sulfur stick. And, um, because sometimes for whatever reason, you just, you, you struggle to find that leak, even with the sulfur stick and this, um, highly sensitive leak detector will dial you in. And, and I can't tell you, it, it really gets you to the source and really, you know, in a timely manner. So, um, and from a service aspect, it's a great tool to carry in, in your vans or in trucks. So, Where do you guys sell those through? Yeah. So um, if we kind of go back to uh, our model, our business model, we sell direct to uh, contractors and end users. So you can, if you're an end user and you're listening to this, you can go through your uh, refrigeration contractor that you currently work with. But if you're a contractor like you guys, like yourselves, you can get it direct uh, from Cool Air Inc. Very nice. We like the place too. On order. Yeah. 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 I think you guys. Hold on a second. Did you just do a YouTube video where you're lighting a stick? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just watched that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, I, I, I'm waiting for the PO to come. I'm looking at my email right now. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll cut that. We'll cut that PO right now. They, we know you guys got the PO power. Okay? These guys actually said they just wanted to pay with credit card direct, so that's that's cool. Yeah, I'll, send, okay. I'll send you the credit card information. We all have one. Well, 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 good. We don't have to do a background check. On you guys, then. Oh, there, there you good. go. So, all right. So. On, on yeah, that, uh, Cameron and I were talking last week about Rita and whether or not we sell products at Rita. So maybe we're selling products on podcasts instead. That's that's the new business model, man. That's right. Uh, <laughs> on that handheld leak detector, does it give you a, a readout or is it a bar graph? Or I, I honestly haven't checked it out too much, so I didn't know what. Yeah, what it'll be is. a readout. Yeah, it'll okay. be a readout right on right on the display that tells you what the concentration is, and it's logging too. So if you need to log, you know, for the 30 minutes that you're in the room, I'm sure you can uh, set the logging interval. Uh, I'm not sure what the default is. It's probably about once a minute where it's taking an average over that minute, right? And then it'll spit out a data point. But it's also giving you real-time data right on the display. Oh, that's nice. I had an application about uh, seven years ago. I really could have used that. <laughs> so we're only a, only a little bit too late on that one. Yeah. Well, can well, we'll you take your order anytime. Well, well, can you share the story? I mean, that... Uh, well, it was... Yeah, it was, it was one of these uh, facilities that I was kind of just talking about that's an older facility where... Um, I mean, the original part of the building was built in the 40s and then expanded in the 70s, I believe, or late 60s. So they were grandfathered in to all the old or uh, grandfathered out of all the new regulations, I should say. But the whenever they would have uh, kind of what you were saying, Mark, is they had a bunch of leak detectors running around. So and they were really good. And in their production room, they would complain that they would be smelling ammonia. And then the... Uh, OSHA regulation says it's 25 ppm on a eight hour time weighted average. So they what they wanted to do, and I, I think they were using another brand of leak detector, but it was not that great. They wanted to go in and read the ppm concentration and have it do that logging function, kind of like you were just talking about, to basically see if the if it was safe for the the workers to be in there or not. So. You know, and then we ended up finding the leak. Eventually, it was kind of one of those deals where it was just a, a hard, a hard to find leak under insulation, and actually ended up the whole pipe was leaking. Uh, you can see the picture on the Instagram, but um, it, the whole entire pipe had deteriorated to the point under it was now completely covered with insulation, but the entire hot gas pipe had deteriorated to the point where the pipe was actually peeling away in layers and leaking through the pipe. So whenever it would go into hot gas, they would you know, smell the, the ammonia leaking into the room at a very low level, but at, nonetheless, it was leaking. So it would have been nice to have a handheld that they could have used to go in at that point and, and, you know, just see what the ammonia concentration was. So, yeah, I, I got a customer at a, a, a Turkey facility and they, they basically give it to all their production supervisors and they allow them to have that as their, um, you know, cause they have all these, uh, they even have like votators where they, they, um, the ammonia goes to this heat exchanger that actually cools the ground turkey. And so they allow these guys to have these handheld detectors to really, in case there's a leak in a, a packing or something kind of valve right there and there, they can identify it and, and get, you know, the process people, uh, workers out of there. It's, it's really, it's, it's a really cool, uh, tool. It really does. And it's, it's, um, it's real time. Like Kevin said, it's, it's really accurate and, and you can gauge the, the level or urgency of the situation based on the PPM level that they're reading out. So, well, I, I like the fact that it, the downfall of the sulfur stick is if you have a leak that's large enough, the whole place just clouds up. So, I mean, other than the irritation on the throat, I mean, if you're really using sulfur sticks for any period of time, I mean, I've gone home and my throat was just, you know, raw uh, from breathing in that sulfur, uh, the sulfur fumes, but, um, you know, whenever you step into a room that actually has any kind of a concentration of ammonia in it, it's not just a small leak on a packing or something like that. I mean, there's, there's just a huge cloud and you're like, well, I guess it's in this side of the room, you know, I can kind of figure that out. Sure. But to have something that actually reads out a concentration and the concentration will grow as you get closer and closer to the leak, I think that's uh, pretty cool. Yeah. Hey guys, can you talk about the two different models that you have for those handheld leak detectors? Um, I noticed there was there was the number two and the number three. Um, what are the differences between the two? Do you see the two different manuals on the website? Yes. Is that 
Yeah, okay, so I think one's just legacy manual, and then we sell the two. So we have a, uh, you know, if you were to purchase, uh, if you had purchased a handheld unit in the past, um, it may have been the one, and now we're up to yeah. the two, so it should be. Okay, so the two is yeah, the one with the, the, the uh, color display and everything on it? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, yeah. so that's the one you sell now. Yeah, that's the one we sell now, and I think we just have the other manual on the website for for those that still have the older model. Right. Yep. Cool. Um, and list list is uh, 1700 for that device. Very I'll, nice. We'll take three then. <laughs> okay. Ruben, you don't do it. Right I, I'm just we, kidding. We have a i5, get one free. So, uh, you know, yeah, Show special. Free. There we go. Hey, guys, yeah. this is uh, Ruben. I'm the only uh, non-ammonia technician here. Um, sure. but I, Ruben, don't let these guys bully you. He, don't let them make you know these these ammonia guys want to make you feel. He, you know, he doesn't even do refrigeration now, guys. He only does uh, AC. Uh, <laughs> do well, do you then, see how he belittles me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that I know that, I might I don't blame him so much. No, I just get Ruben. So. Yeah, I had a quick question on the um, yeah. since we're on the topic of these handheld leak detectors. Um, is there any difference between these handheld uh, leak detector sensors and versus what you would put inside a facility, or is it the same ones? Uh, so typically what you would put into a handheld device is electrochemical. Um, I'm not exactly sure what we put into ours. I'd have to check. It, um, but typically what the sensor technology that goes into handheld devices is electrochemical. It depends on the gas, right? Um, like if you're looking at methane, those are typically catalytic bead. Um, other gases may take an infrared sensor. Um, they won't be solid state like our solid state sensors. So it's probably one of the two, either electrochemical or uh, infrared. Uh, there are also PIDs, but then you're typically looking at uh, 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 organic compounds, right? VOCs. Okay, what's the uh, general um, life expectancy of one of them uh, sensors on the handheld? Mm -hmm. On the handheld? Yeah. Um, they're probably going to last, you know, I would say probably three to five years. Uh, we'll warranty them for three years. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you use it once, right, it's going to last longer. If you use it every day, all day long, um, you're probably in that three-year range, should be about in that three- to five-year range. And can you give a quick rundown of the other gases that it will do? Does it do like SO2? You said methane. What, what yeah. are the, some of the other gases yeah, that you're looking a, at? Yeah, oxygen. Uh, some, so like NOx, SOx, some of the main uh, common ones, uh, chlorine. There's like 100. So okay. uh, the, the chances of, uh, yeah, the chances of someone coming to us and saying, uh, we need this sensor type and us not being able to provide that is is probably not very good. So if you look at a lot of handheld equipment on the market today, they have a whole laundry list of sensors that they uh, can support. Ours should probably do the same, uh, with the exception of probably when you're looking at putting a PID in the device and specifically looking at VOCs. Okay, gotcha. I think the list was over like 50 to 50, 50 sensors for sure. Yeah, Chad was just scrolling through the list and it took him like five minutes to get through the whole <laughs> thing. So it looked pretty extensive. <laughs> He's not yeah. an expert. Yep. Yeah. Um, I wanted to yep. swing back real quick and, and get back into the, uh, I guess, the fixed placement sensors. Are the sensors that yeah. you guys are selling, do, are they standalone only? Do they communicate with a central station? How, how does that uh, interface work, or is there an interface? Uh, both. So a short answer is both. Uh, our detectors, so we have kind of three uh, main uh, detector models in the low concentration range. Um, and each of those can be placed into the application all alone as individual entities. So they, um, uh, two of them have 4 to 20 milliamp output. So if you want to connect them to a PLC, they can. Um, uh, two of them have open collector. I'm sorry, two of them have uh, relays so uh, that are normally closed, normally open, like open contact relays. Uh, so those can be connected to uh, a ventilation equipment, uh, exhaust fans enable other pieces of equipment for shutdown, but uh, they they also can communicate with our panel. So we offer a panel uh, as well too, and then you can monitor all the devices from one location. You, you'll see other systems on the market, um, not a lot, but there are a few others where 
the sensor is just a sensor and without the panel it it can't do anything that's not the case in ours where the detector itself can be installed as an individual entity and then we can also communicate back to panels as well too so even if you installed like a standalone detector if it had a relay or something like that you could power like a horn and strobe or or some visual yes. indicator audible indicator that there's a leak because I, I believe that that's yep. Uh, part yep. of the regs is to have a, a visual and audible indicator in a main hallway or, or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, all of our detectors. Yeah, yeah. So two of our detectors have the relays, and they have the other thing that's kind of unique about our equipment is we have a low alarm and a high alarm set point on the detector. So when we talked about 25 ppm earlier and 150 ppm, you can set the low alarm to 25, and then connect the the alarm light and horn to that, and then set the high alarm to 150 and connect the equipment to the alarm relay or the alarm con high alarm contacts. Hey guys, I was just wondering if, uh, say a technician was to go and calibrate the sensors. Is there a procedure that y'all follow or that y'all have yes. online to follow? Can y'all talk yeah. about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, both. Um, so we do have videos on our website that you can view of, all three of our models, so the Watchman, the LBW420, and the 50, in both solid state and EC format. So to, regardless of which sensor you have in your application, you can watch uh, the videos, which are on our website. Uh, if, if we talk about the actual process, uh, it's, it's a pretty easy process. So we, we want to gain access to the panel or the board that's inside the detector. And so you open the detector and we have like little clips that you can just pop open and open the, open the detector. And then you're gonna interface with some of the buttons on the back of the board and put the detector into service mode. So we're gonna disable the relays and the four to 20 milliamp circuits so we're not causing alarms or sending information back to the PLC. And then put the detector in calibration mode. So two different adjustments with the buttons on the back and then at that point, you're ready to apply the gas. And, and in the solid state, in the case of the solid state or the EC, it's just uh, we're, we're, we want to apply the gas, but it's two different methods. So in the case of solid state, we hold a, a bottle underneath the sensor, and the bottle's got an ammonia solution in it. And then it's got a space for the vapor right above the bottle. And so you place, place the bottle underneath the sensor, and then you're watching uh, the display. So uh, to, to make sure that the, your known concentration, right, so that it's dialing into its known concentration. And then there are buttons that you can, so if you go way past, so if, let's say it's 100 ppm, right, you have a 100 ppm bottle and it goes up to 150, then you can hit the down button and bring it back down close to 100. And you, you want to do that within about 90 seconds, much past that, and uh, then, then, we're, then we're kind of affecting linearity and everything, and we want to make sure detection is quick and accurate within the, you know, very, very quickly. And so we, we don't want to hold that gas under there for too long, right? And then after we've done up and down and we think the, the display matches what we have in our bottle, then we hit enter, uh, you remove the sample, and then put the detector back into normal operating mode after the concentration has gone below, below the alarms because if it hasn't yet, the alarms will go off when you put it back into normal mode. But it's... Uh, it's about a two-minute process on any of our detectors. Uh, it's pretty easy. You don't you don't use a multimeter. I was um, just no, gonna so ask that. I was like, "What the heck? Yes. I, mean, I don't have to use a multimeter yeah. and try to have three hands." No, you put that put that thing on the floor. We don't need that for this process. So I, I mean, you guys should be in you know in the circus sometimes because you're on a, what you guys are on <laughs> a twenty-five foot uh, twenty-five foot scissor lift in a minus thirty degree freezer, and you got to have a multimeter and and a screwdriver to dial in the pot. Uh, I mean, how many hands? does a service tech need right and 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 here all you got to do is hit the up and down button on, to, to, to dial it in on our detector so really made easy for maintenance uh, uh whether it's the end user or a service tech themselves so. yeah that sounds yeah. a lot easier I so, like that so while, while we're on the calibration um sure can you guys well how often should they be calibrated? And then can you also talk uh, bump test versus actual calibration with your guys' sensors? Sure. Um, so we require annual calibration uh, for both our solid state and our uh, EC sensor and for the catalytic bead on the LEL. So uh, once a year is what we require. Um, 
when it comes time to bump test, so we define bump test as you just take checking to make sure the sensor is reading. So if you were to place a uh, ammonia bottle or the, east, the cal gas for the EC sensor onto the sensor, does it react? Is the concentration, and you can look right on the display, right? Because that's one of the benefits of having our detector is it has a display right on it. You can look right at the display and tell whether or not the concentration is going up. So if it does, that's all we got to do for bump test. And then when we calibrate, uh, we define that as we want to make sure the sensor is working properly, and we also want to make sure it's reading accurately. And if it's not, we need to calibrate. And so that'll correct for drift over that year. Um, and then you can also, at that point, maybe find a failed sensor. So during calibration, we want to make sure it's working and it's reading accurately for your target target alarms. So if a sensor all out fails, does it... Is there anything that it that will tell you right away, or is it just as you're checking them? Yeah, uh, yeah. So what we tell our customers is the best way to tell is uh, whether or not the sensor is working is to bump test it, and uh, we recommend uh, monthly testing in critical areas, and it's kind of up to them to define what's critical, non-critical, and then quarterly testing in non-critical areas. Um, besides that. Our solid state sensors, we do monitor uh, for electric electronically to determine whether or not the sensor, the heater in the sensor is working properly and the resistance is is accurate. So if either of those things aren't kind of right, we will send out an error. So you'll get an error on the screen and uh, different errors, right? And then we have a little table telling you which errors each. And then we have a third relay on two of our detectors. It's called auxiliary relay. And so if you have that connected to um, uh, equipment or PLC, that relay is enabled and can also tell the user that there's an error in place. Same with the 4 to 20. The 4 to 20 drops to below zero, and the PLC can be notified that there's a, a, a malfunction with the sensor. Awesome. Going back uh, real quick on the calibration, I wanted to touch on uh, some of the manufacturers require a warm-up period. Uh, normally, they would have you to replace the sensor and wait 24 hours or something like that to, and then come back mm -hmm. and calibrate it. Is that the same with, with your sensors as well? Uh, we require, so when you, when you first install the device, right, we want you to calibrate when you get it, right? Cause it could get damaged in shipping or uh, maybe you purchased it and left it on the shelf. Um, so we want you to calibrate when you uh, install the device for our solid state sensor. It's an eight hour warm up period. And for EC sensor, it's just 20 minutes. And for the solid state sensor, you can bump it uh, almost within a few minutes. Right when you plug it in, the alarms will enable, so it, it thinks it's reading ammonia. But after about a minute, those will those will go down, um, and then you can bump test uh, relatively quickly. And then full warm up is eight hours for solid state sensors. So you're going to get overtime that day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just sitting here waiting. <laughs> you're, you're in the money. Yeah. I think one of the other, I think did you have another question, Ruben, or no? Yes. <laughs> Give me a second. No. The court rests. <laughs> I was wondering if they're um wash down safe enclosures. Yeah. For these senses. Uh, okay. The enclosures are. We, we don't have any uh, holes on the enclosure because our sensors uh, are mounted to the outside of the detector. Okay. So we see that uh, as providing very quick response to an ammonia leak. And if the device is outdoors or in a washdown area and we need to protect that sensor, specifically, especially the solid state sensor, uh, the EC sensor's kind of got a little cylinder over it, but... Um, the both sensors, you can buy an accessory and pop that on uh, the bottom of the enclosure to protect the sensor during washdown and if it's outdoors for rain, snow, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, because we know that if if there's a sensor in a room, it doesn't matter how high up it is, somehow it's the cleanup crew down. will wash it down. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's, it's like the Wild West with those guys half the time. They're spraying everything and anything uh, 
when they're in there. So they learned uh, wash down procedures over at Mount Sac, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably needed uh, at the time. Say, you know, so. I, I, I apologize for saying that. Guy. That's no, true. I shouldn't have done that. No, no it was awesome. Oh, no, that, that was perfect. I'm glad you did. Uh, Okay. All right. <laughs> well, they can make fun of us for our ridiculous Minnesota accent, which hopefully is. I, I try to tune it out. If I, or I try to, I'm working on it. So I mean, it's I'm not too bad. For I'm you guys. sorry. Have you heard me talk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I can only talk about my accent. I can't talk about others. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sitting on a five-gallon pail ice fishing right now. I don't know what you guys are doing. You know, oh, I wish I was there then. That sounds amazing. <laughs> hey, do, do you guys? You guys are welcome to come up anytime. You know, come uh, on up, careful. So. We'll all take you up on that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Have any of you guys been up here? No, no, we have not. Not that far north. No. 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 Have you Have you drove on on the lake that's ice? I mean, have you drove on ice water? Have you walked on water like that? You like know? Jesus. <laughs> like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not perfect, Mark. <laughs> well, me and Kevin are part of the twelve disciples. <laughs> no way. What, what we say is gospel. Come on, gospel. So, uh, I don't. Oh, it, I think people get their they're, they're kind of weirded out by that fact. But honestly, it's a hobby up here, and we enjoy the outdoors. So uh, that's something we do during the winter when it gets cold. We we, go we have to. Fishing. Yeah, we have yeah. to. We have another choice. We have to. Otherwise, it's. Miserable, because like uh, <laughs> winter usually starts now and then doesn't get done until May. There is no spring and fall. <laughs> so what what so, kind of fish are you guys catching underneath the ice? Uh, uh, walleye, uh, northern pike, um, you know, crappies, sunfish. Uh, those are like panfish kind of. Walleye. I mean, I can't tell you how good that is to eat if you've never had uh, deep fried walleye. Uh, or even pan, uh, pan fried. It's it's delicious. So um, I, I'm sure you guys got freshwater lakes in Texas, right? With walleye and uh, all that good stuff, right? I, bass, probably bass. Bass. Yeah. Bass. Okay. I, I don't think I'd eat a fish out of a Texas lake. <laughs> oh come on! Oh come on! <laughs> uh, well, they, you, you have to pick and like, choose a little they're, bit. They're not crystal clear lakes like up there. Yeah, we we got ten thousand plus, so we got a lot of options, and um, you know it's. Uh, Life's, it, we can even spearfish. Uh, now I'm really getting into the weeds, but uh, you sit in a dark shack with no lights. Uh, you cut a two-by-four hole in the ice. You sit there, and you put eggshells at the bottom of the lake. It's only like four or five feet deep, and you see a big fish come in, and you literally slowly ease your spear into the water without uh, scaring the fish, and you throw it down, and you, and you spearfish. It's, 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 yeah. it's that like sounds cool. It is cool. It's it's kind of um, prehistoric uh, in some sense. Uh, it's um, but I don't know if I'm painting a good picture for Minnesotans. I, I it's like <laughs> we, we got nothing to do. I, uh, I mean, it, today honestly, I said I was on an ice bucket. It's it's seventy degrees. Uh, it's it's a beautiful fall day. So um, you know, I, I it is a good place to live. So don't drive out on the lake today. <laughs> you'd be surprised nope. people try sometimes it's it's you always get the news reports of another uh truck or too early going in on, on trying to get on yep. the ice so mm -hmm. yeah i got one more kind of off the wall question for you guys about cool air inc was sure. was there a reason for going with the brightest yellow possible on the enclosures <laughs> yeah well we want them to make sure that they stand out in 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 whatever application that they've been installed in. So when you come into the room, whether or not there's a leak, a current leak, right, you can identify where the detection is. And, you know, a lot of, some of the other colors blend in with all the other equipment, and there's always so much stuff going on in these rooms. We want to make sure that you guys, uh, everybody can see where the detector is. And that's another reason why we have the display on there, so you can actually look at what the concentration is right on the, Without, without having to look anywhere else. You don't have to go to the panel. You don't have to go to the control room where the readouts are. You can just look right at the detector, find it easily, and you know what the concentration is. So Yeah, I, I appreciate that. that provides a lot of value. No, I do appreciate that because if you're looking, if, especially, I mean, if you had a release and you had a cloud and then you're looking yeah. for a dark green or a gray sensor and sometimes though, and you have, or not even just an ammonia release, you just have a dark room, like dark engine rooms. I mean, things just, 
sometimes are just dark and they're covered with dust. Right. And uh, sometimes those other colors, like you said, do blend in with the walls and you looking around trying to figure out where the heck the, the leak detector is. So I think that is a pretty cool uh, idea for that. Makes it a lot sure. easier on the service technician. Yeah, because how often are you are you guys coming into spaces where you're maybe not necessarily by yourself or or whoever you're with doesn't know and you have to try to find them? Does that does that kind of does that happen for you guys? Yeah, yep. yeah, I had an issue <laughs> um, a couple of months ago and there's a sensor failure and I couldn't find where the sensor was. I had to call Chad. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, like, I mean, whenever, like we were talking about earlier, when they put on behind stuff or the facility, you know, when they're building the facility, maybe it's not behind anything. Come in and re-rack the place or they'll move stuff around and all of a sudden the the sensor isn't highly visible anymore and you can can get lost real quick. So, yeah, we definitely appreciate that. How about um, any other, like, pain points or, or... Or uh, features that you that you would like on detectors, where you're like, man, I wish this thing had this, or uh, I wish it had that, or or something that really, you know, uh, really is a pain for you guys while you're out there. No, not really. I mean, I think that the biggest pain points were kind of what we were alluding to, laughing a little bit about it, but trying to uh, trying to calibrate some of the sensors with having all everything in your hand all at one time and and getting that dialed sure. in can be a little bit of a, a pain factor. Um, I do like the remote, uh, viewing cause with a lot of sensors, if you have a refrigeration yep. automation system, then you can, you know, now we're getting into more sophisticated technology where we can dial in remotely and look at a remote, uh, or look at the system remotely. So if there is a release, we can see what the PPM levels are before we go in. But a lot of older systems don't have that technology still. So if right. you have a release, you don't know exactly what the PPM level concentration is. And there is a definite cutoff there where the service technician should not uh, maybe be even entering the facility at that point, unless you have SCBA or some other PPE that you can don to go in the building. So those are, uh, I think those are definite advantages and having those on the outside of the building or in a outside of the room, something like that is, is awesome. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate that for as a service technician, definitely. Yeah, we see that quite often where somebody has placed the detector at the door and the sensors in the room. And like Mark said, we can do that up to 500 feet, so we can go pretty far with with the sensor if we need to. We, you know, uh, roof rooftop penthouses. You know, you guys are walking the roof, and those are enclosed like for freezers and coolers. Uh, you, you know, all the OEM penthouses that are available nowadays. It's a really great feature to. Be able to look at the at the door, look at the look at the display, and know the PPM before I even walk into that enclosed space. I mean, um, just promoting safety to the nth degree, really, and um, keeps you guys safe, keeps uh, maintenance mechanics safe. It's uh, it's a really great feature of ours. So, well, it sounds like you guys put a lot of thought into them. We really appreciate it. I think we're coming up uh, towards the uh, end of the time that we have here. I wanted to give you an opportunity just to tell people where they can uh, find you at. And then if they have any questions, how they can get a hold of you. Sure. Uh, so uh, our website is www.coolairinc.com. Uh, you can purchase direct from us or we can uh, point you towards a contractor as well too. Uh, so you can always buy the equipment uh, from a, a variety of different methods. Um, I'll even give my email address. My email address is Kevin. T as in Tom at coolairinc.com. And I'll even give you my cell. My cell number is 651-508-0660. Call anytime. For a good time. <laughs> for a good time. No, just for, for ammonia leak detector. Oh, okay. <laughs> for a handheld leak detector. Or ice fishing. Yeah, that too. Yes. <laughs> Kevin, how come that's on almost every urinal wall? Now? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Well, uh, he's know, really he's a really personable guy. guys. It's on all those I ice shacks. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's on all the ice shacks. Yeah. <laughs> you guys, you guys got to you guys got to get up here. I'm telling you, get up here, uh, check it out. But I, I might forego all the informational stuff because truly, my role is in our construction department. I think Kevin gave you his information uh, to our to our listening audience, and um, he'd be the right guy to contact. Um, I, you know, unless you want to go ice fishing, <laughs> I, I can give you my number. But I mean, I'm no, here to support fine. too. I don't, you know, but uh, in all in all good fun, um, 
you know, if you get a hold of Kevin and you truly want to talk to me, he'll he'll give you my contact information. Yeah, for sure. Like you said, you might even see Mark at a show, depending on what what we got going on here at Cooler Inc. Yeah. Are you guys? We talked about a little bit, Kevin. Are you guys going to be doing the virtual Rita? Yes, we are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So I still got to design that booth and everything, but um, I have logged in and seen a a few others are exhibiting. I don't know what uh, I think. I think we had talked to Rita. A few weeks ago, they had probably about 30 exhibitors. Um, I'm sure it's grown since. That might have been a month ago. Um, so, yeah, if you guys are attending, uh, come on to the booth. We are, Cooler Inc. is participating in the bingo program that they usually have. So they're still going to try to do that, um, where I think if you chat with the exhibitor and ask the questions, then the exhibitor can provide you with the answer and you can get your card punched virtually uh, quote unquote, whatever that means. Um, so we will be there and, uh, online during exhibition hours for sure. Awesome. So if anybody out there is going to be attending Rita, make sure you stop yeah. by the cool air, um, booth. I think Kevin, you, you decorated your office for that, right? So as a little, as a little booth. <laughs> I, I did. Yep. Oh, it's a lot of bling and uh, detectors in the background, all kinds of stuff. There's lots of, be, lots of digital displays show. going off everywhere. That's right. <laughs> Horn and strobes, the whole bit. Yep, yep. That's a good idea. I think I might, uh, I might you, do that. You should, you should see his bedroom, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got detectors for other gases, not, not just, not just ammonia. There's a lot of detectors in there. <laughs> oh my goodness, you guys have well, been, you guys have been well, awesome. Yeah, well, definitely. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, look at the time. Got to go, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we, all right. Well, thanks again so much. It, w- it was a pleasure, and um, uh, yeah. I'd love to do it again if you if you just want to chat. We'd love to we'd love to talk to you guys anytime. Absolutely, we'll, we're thanks. gonna do it. Thanks for having us. Well, so, and the other thing is, you know, Mark has really has only a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs>